Hello, welcome to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science of luxury items. I am super duper extra excited today because not only do we have an interview, but it's an interview with my brother. <laughs> yes. Um, so my brother Sam, I think has been an artist since he was a kid. Um, and we're going to talk to him a little bit today about perspective in drawing. Not perspective in life. I don't think we'll get that deep. But <laughs> no, we can, oh, no. though. You're an artist. Yeah. So, Sam, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and sort of the kind of art that you like to do? And Yeah, it's great to be here, sister and brother. My name's Sam Boyd. I'm Alexis's younger but older of two brothers. I'm still in the middle. Uh, I'm an artist living in Australia, uh, kind of early career. So I've had a show and I'm working towards another one. And mainly the art that I kind of gravitate towards is figurative classical style uh, painting and drawing. And that's what I make and exhibit. My Insta is Sam Boyd, S-A-M-B-O-Y-D dot art. So go have a look if you're keen and uh, happy Definitely to chat. Definitely check it out. It's super cool. It'll and, be in the show notes. Yes. And we'll, we'll cross promotion on Instagram and stuff. Yeah. Thanks for the episode. shout out. Yeah. So I am not an artist, as Samuel well knows. Um, and so I have no idea how you go about translating the 3D world into a 2D space. So how do you take something that's three-dimensional and put it onto paper? Just doing a little bit of initial research, I came across this idea of linear perspective, which it seems very mathematical to me. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. But actually was based initially on Euclid's elements, so Euclidean geometry. And one of the things that I thought Sammy, we might be interested to know is that uh, Galileo's moon drawings were one of the first examples of this. And so this, there was a British astronomer who also made moon drawings at the same time. But since Galileo used perspectives, his showed like the mountains and the craters and all of the three dimensions of the moon, where the other guys just was like a disk. There's clear benefit to it, both for science... Uh, Art and for science. It's interesting you brought up the point of Euclid kind of roots of um, how some academic drawing or single point perspective came about. And uh, Demos made the funny comment of like, you know, there's nothing wrong with math. But I, what I find in, in my practice, there's a lot of crossover between how the math and science of it are executed. But you could still play around creatively within mm -hmm. those bounds and following some basic rules of perspective, composition, and tone, you create something that looks realistic to the human eye, but still has your signature on it in a mm -hmm. way. You could still play around creatively within the kind of mathematical or um, scientific academic style of classical art. And uh, that's the kind of art that I make and I, I'm always kind of attracted to. But yeah, and it's been around for hundreds of years, if not more, like the person who's kind of credited with like single point perspective that you mentioned at least in how it applies to like drawing still is Brunelleschi, who's a famous Florentine architect. He did the Duomo. Oh, um, the gingerbread. And so like hurt. he kind of codified it and it went into a famous painting book called On Painting, which mm. was written by Alberti. And they kind of came up with some of the early rules. And then it was applied through Da Vinci. And like there are early artists like Giotto and Donatello and some other folks that were working with linear perspective. And by that, I mean like using a vanishing point for parallel lines in a drawing or painting to kind of run towards and it mm. helps to develop depth in a painting and i i should also kind of like preface even before we get to anything deeper is this is from the like perspective of what we know is kind of western art yes yeah 
So there's art from all over the world that plays in depth and composition in a totally different way mm-hmm. for interesting reasons. Some of those might be religious or spiritual and, and just how they build depth and composition in a painting is totally different than say like a yeah. Western kind of. An example is, you know, sort of ancient, well, even modern iconography in the church is two-dimensional. Right. There is no attempt. That's right. And they might even, so like in an icon or um, a religious painting, it would be common no matter what the religion to make the deity the larger yeah. figure yeah. Um, or, or place it in a certain height on, on the image like the Egyptians would or something mm. like that. So I guess we'll start with that kind of just to frame like yeah. the discussion. Look, this is from a kind of a, you know, Western or, you know, perspective on, on how this kind of flows, mm-hmm. um, specifically because this is kind of how it's taught in modern day ateliers which i like to go to workshops to kind of improve some of my own skills and they teach it the same way that they would have in an academy in you know bologna in the 1500s or medici really academy cool. or something like that. That's yeah really because neat. it works yeah it's based on science you know it's yeah. based on a perspective it's based on shadow and and value and and all these concepts ring true if you're looking for that kind of western style 3d classical image yeah. um, one of the distortions of the perspective that I thought was really interesting just doing some preliminary research was there's one that's called anamorphous where you stretch the perspective in one direction or another to kind of obscure the form and apparently that's done by putting grids on top of the original form and then stretching the grid and then you stretch the image and so apparently you can only see the original form of what they were trying to paint by looking at it from a certain angle usually kind of from the side yeah, well, there's a lot of tricks that early painters or earlier painters, I mean, uh, well-known, famous names used. One of which was like Donatello and some other early, and even uh, Bernaleski himself, I think, used glass to kind of draw or make marks on top of mm-hmm. to start to discover and kind of, you know, work through that perspective problem. And that's how they started to develop a single point or dual point perspective where you might have different vanishing points. And the idea is like a lot of these kind of parallel lines can run into vanishing points and that brings your eye naturally into a point of focus. And Mm -hmm. famously, like in The Last Supper, which is one of the most famous works of Western art, Da Vinci coupled the trick of how to move your eye into a vanishing point with also like a compositional um, kind of highlight where he puts the focus of the whole painting of Jesus at The Last Supper at that vanishing point. So your eye kind of goes in there and also like where he puts the eye line of the other uh, figures around the table for the Last Supper. It's all of the figures' eye lines are at the horizon line for the perspective that he mm. set. There's all these tricks that are uh, that were worked through by Runeleski and, and others over the centuries, mm-hmm. um, and they ring true because it works compositionally. It, it, it makes sense to our eye when we look at it. And as we know, uh, mathematics is one of those true sciences that does not alter very much. <laughs> that's right yeah and so like math is kind of set <laughs> yeah and if you're playing in the in the art space in that way it and much like music or or i suppose um cuisine even like there's certain rules for our ears our taste buds that work and you could play within those rules and it still kind of rings you know yeah it feels it like makes sense to our eye yeah. or to our ear or to our taste buds like um and that's what they emphasize in the Renaissance and in the centuries after. And there's famous artists that kind of well-known in this, you know, kind of classical art circles like Bougereau and thing and John Singer Sargent, who uh, are still really revered in these uh, contemporary figurative circles. But that's just like one way of kind of looking at it. You have artists yeah. that yeah. came along and kind of shattered those rules and made amazing 
I think Picasso um, being probably one of the preeminent ones. That's right. <laughs> he just sort well, of the idea the behind whole... this, yeah, <laughs> because like you know when Brunelleschi and and um, Alberti and you know writing these books on the, the early you know works on how to do a painting effectively, and their idea was it should be like looking through a window more mm-hmm. or less, and the big thing I suppose that Picasso did among others was say well stuff it yeah it doesn't have to be that way yeah um, and it was earth shattering in the in the painting world um and continues to be do you have a question you uh yeah i think the only rule i know mathematically in photography is the rule of thirds does that yeah. apply to uh to sketching to um to oil painting or or, or just there's all, on paper yeah i think the idea that, uh, the short answer is yes so like uh, and you're speaking about composition, kind of how you lay out what you want to do on the canvas or on the paper. And there's tricks that you can use that look good to our eye in terms of composition. It could be a rule of thirds. It could mm-hmm. be like a Fibonacci layout. Oh, the Fibonacci. Be, I like that golden, one. It golden. could be perspective, <laughs> that single uh, point perspective with like mm-hmm. one vanishing point or two point perspective with, se- you know, you can have different vanishing points on your kind of orthogonals so that it it draws your eye in a different way, depending on what you're looking to, to achieve. But uh, yeah, so like perspective's important, composition's vitally important on how you mm-hmm. lay it out on, on the page or on the canvas. And then the big thing that I like to use drawing for to kind of work through is um, is form and rendering mm-hmm. form uh, was taught in these classical ateliers and is still today. And you achieve that, you know, through proportion and also a command of shadow and value. And that's mm. probably the biggest trick. I teach a life drawing class occasionally um, at a gallery that I work with. And I think generally what's often not covered in like your eighth grade art yeah. class <laughs> and, and what makes drawing hard for a lot of people is they don't consider how value. So like the light and dark of a, mm. of a shape can really define the form of it. Mm. Um, so that's a big part of what you learn in a, in a workshop in like an atelier if you're learning from these kind of classical style artists. Who do you value as an artist that has used light and dark? I know there are a lot. Oh, I mean, there's so many. I think I'm, I personally always love John Singer Sargent's paintings. I think they're just spectacular. And to see them in person is is really yeah, special. I have to credit you for introducing me to the works of John yeah. I remember going, the, the three of us siblings going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and you were just like, you had a beeline for this one particular yeah. portrait, which is really stunning. And I usually avoid the portraitures. They're, they're not my favorite, but this one was, it's really beautiful. I like portraits. Yeah, he's a he's a personal favorite. I like, as far as contemporary artists, I like, um, there's a British painter called um, Jenny Seville. Um, and I saw a show of hers that she had in New York City maybe seven, oh, five years ago. Mm. And she does very, um, like, big canvases of of human figures, and they're just stunning. She's quite well-known in, in the painting circles and has been established for quite a long time. But I reckon she's probably one of the greatest living painters out there. Yeah, you know, she's really great. And in terms of, like, of how somebody executes the command of value in a human figure specifically, I think she does it in a masterful way. So how do you start? You know, do you do you get out like like a slide rule and a compass and like is is the math conscious in terms of your actually measuring things or is it more intuitive at a certain point in the process? At, at a certain point, it's intuitive, but like in a workshop that you might do at a um, 
an atelier or something like that, you do learn how to measure. There's different techniques in terms of site size or uh, there's different measuring techniques out there that um, people subscribe to. Some of it is kind of comparative, like you might hold your arm straight out and use like a kind of a pencil or like a straight edge and yeah just like the kind of caricature of what an artist would do and there's a reason for that like yeah you're trying to get uh, a sense of uh using some basic measurements to get a sense of proportion i'll do a little bit of that but mainly i'm using that kind of straight edge to look for angles in the in the form in terms of mm -hmm. how it's how they're relative to each other uh, and there used to be like kind of rules like you know the vitruvian man oh like yeah the guy yeah uh, yeah, yeah you know, the famous kind of proportion setup that Da Vinci did. So there's kind of rules that over time we've, we've sort of discovered more or less, but also like, because not every figure that you draw or paint is going to be standing straight up or right, yeah. balanced like a Vitruvian man. <laughs> um, you, you know, there's different kind of techniques, but over time you get used to just kind of what to look for. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there used to be like these kind of rules, like in ancient, uh, I think there was, it was kind of accepted, like for some ancient Greek sculpture kind of, uh, canon like the perfect kind of form would be seven heads tall yeah. or something like that yeah but if it was somebody of like stature they'd say i'll just make them eight heads tall <laughs> and and there's different similar rules for egyptian art yeah uh, where they said yeah. hey look the human figure should be so many torsos yeah. high or so many heads yeah. high some tricks anatomically that you can use but i think at the core of it you're looking for you know relative proportion and then looking for shapes and shadow mm -hmm. And that allows you to really render a figure accurately and feel accurate. Because I know your last series that went into the gallery had a lot of surfers. So that is definitely not a upright form necessarily, right? And so, I mean, do you want to describe kind of how you went about trying to capture such a fluid and active form? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I work, you know, generally off of like preparatory drawings, um, sometimes I work from photographs. I prefer to work from, you know, from life, but you can't just sit there and paint on a beach and look to capture uh, <laughs> movement like that. Yeah. You can work from models that, in a studio. I'm doing that for my next, a few of my next paintings. I'm going to hire some models to, to pose mm -hmm. um, for a time. It's yeah. fairly expensive, but. I don't know how someone could sit still that long. Yeah. Well, when we do the life drawing, we, how the classes are generally structured and how they've been structured for hundreds of years basically is. You start off with gesture drawing. So you do like 30 to 60 second quick poses where you're just mm -hmm. trying to capture the overall movement. And it's mm -hmm. really just a warm up exercise. And then you do maybe five, 10 or 20 minute poses to, okay. to warm up. But yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how it builds. And it's amazing how quickly the time goes. You're really, yeah. you know, focused. And, um, but yeah. So I mix drawing or painting from life, uh, which I prefer and I find actually easier. Um, and then working off the photographs because it's practical. There's challenges with working off photographs. But if you have a grounding in drawing and painting from life, or especially drawing from life, you can kind of, you know, get around some of the challenges of, of mm -hmm. doing it from a picture. I think um, one of the, uh, the modern issue right now with shadowing and composition is how we look on Zoom calls. <laughs> yeah. That's like right. right now, I see harsh shadows in all the wrong places. <laughs> well, the shadow shape is an interesting kind of, uh, it's an interesting idea. Uh, and I don't know where the science kind of comes from, but it's it's generally it's a generally accepted way to teach in mm -hmm. in fine art in that the shadow shape has a few kind of rules to it. And generally how you're taught is basically you're looking for planes rather than drawing the circle of somebody's face. You're drawing and painting the planes of how the light kind of reflect off of that object. Interesting. Um, That's a good way so to think of the face. Yeah. 
So like, I, I mean, uh, this is going to be on a Spotify or podcast, so I can't really demonstrate, but like, imagine like the shadow under your chin, mm-hmm. where the light stops and the shadow begins and where that shadow kind of defines a contour of your face, mm-hmm. where the light stop and the, sh- and the kind of shadow begins is called the Terminator line, which is Ooh. a silly way. I yeah, like it. It, it sounds really, very serious. <laughs> very serious, but it's kind of what it's called in um, the art world, uh, if you will. Or some version of that. Mm. And so like when you're learning to draw on these kinds of places and the way they taught it classically was you look for that terminated line and then you start to make whatever's on the darker side of that line, you, you kind of start to darken that up. Mm. And within that shadow shape, there's light bouncing around, like reflected light mm. and all sorts of things. So, but whatever is kind of on that shadow shape needs to be darker than what's on the other side of the terminator. Mm. There's also other shadows like maybe underneath your chin or underneath your earlobe. That's a cast shadow. So it's like an object blocking the light. Mm. And that's always like the darkest on an object. Yeah. So there's rules within these shadows that allow you to really bring a form to life mm-hmm. um, 3D on a 2D surface, like a paint, mm. like a canvas or a, a piece of paper. Yeah, Drawing is core to all of it. Because once you yeah. understand how to do value with a drawing, it transitions over to you know color theory. Mm-hmm. And you went through pigments already. It's like quite complex, but... At the end of the day, if you could solve for the value problem, which you do with drawing, I think it makes the painting uh, more manageable. And I think that's why drawing is probably the core of kind of art school experiences. Yeah, I was looking and apparently there are some artists, particularly ones in the 18th century, sorry, 19th century, that did the, the shadow so well that if you know where they were painting, you can know what time of day they were painting at. Because mm-hmm. you would know what, how the yeah. sun would have reflected the light. That's amazing. That's amazing. It brings up a, it's so incredible. Yeah, the other thing that is interesting in terms of like painting and drawing scientifically, and we we encountered one in Greece a few weeks ago. It was a camera obscura, yeah, um, or the, the other types of lenses and cameras that that were used actually for a lot longer than people realized to actually create an accurate drawing. Basically, mm-hmm. they used um, a camera lens to. Uh, reflect the incoming light and it would be inverted and then so someone like famously um, Vermeer likely used one um, almost certainly yeah and was able to go into like a little secret room (laughs) and kind of uh, effectively work off of the image which uh, for me doesn't take away from how great his paintings are no because that's just for the the sketching part of it right you still have to do all the Uh, all the rest (laughs) yeah I think uh, with I think they allege that the camera obscura is that even Vermeer would use. They, it would basically be an upside down color image. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, there's a really interesting documentary called Tim's Vermeer, which was, I think, driven in large part by um, David Hockney, the famous British artist, hmm. to kind of suggest like, hey, Vermeer is great, but, you know, he's probably using one of these tools back in the day. Yeah. And um, they're able to kind of recreate the effects that he got but um and i for me personally it doesn't matter like I, no they're still masterworks but um still amazing i think it was a bit controversial when it came out uh, a couple decades ago uh, what was it called again tim's vermeer is the name of the of the film and it talks about the likely use of uh of some sort of camera obscure camera kind of instrument right. yeah um but like we saw one in um in greece a few weeks ago that can yeah. be used by artists yeah. to kind of get an image that they can work yeah, off of. Yeah, it was such a shame it wasn't still operational. Yeah, it was in that pretty rough really shape. Cool. Wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very rough yeah. shape. I think you probably would have spent your entire time on the island in there, though, sketching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, um, those make good tools, but um, nothing beats working from life, I think. Uh, and I think with a bit of practice, mm-hmm. it actually becomes easier than 
you know, folks, you know, might assume, oh, it must be easier working from a, a photo, but really from life with, with good light sources, like kind of fixed light sources is, um, is probably easier because so, that's how our eyeballs, you know, receive yeah. that information every day. Yeah. Do you have a, a, um, a sort of type of light that you like to work in? Uh, no, I, I don't know that. I'm, I mean, I like if I'm doing life drawing or something, I like to have kind of a fixed light source um, just because it allows you to, to play in those shadow shapes. Mm-hmm. So I'd like kind of a single or more intense light source, just especially if I'm teaching so I can kind of drive that point home to the folks in the group. But I don't know that I'm as advanced a painter yet to know what what I'd like to work with yet. Like I'm, I'm still on a journey in the early stages of my career as a painter, still learning a lot, making mistakes every damn day. So, <laughs> in, um, in our brown pigments episode, our most recent mm. one, I show off some uh, portraiture by Rembrandt Van Rin and mm-hmm. uh, Flora. That is image of this woman in deep sepia. And it's just her face and she's surrounded by brown. She's almost coming out of a brown Background. black hole yeah. if you, or brown hole <laughs> and it's just her face and and everything is in tones of sort of these tones of brown and flesh mm-hmm. and it's amazing to me that that image maybe it's because there's nothing else to engage you except her face yeah and then it and then the rest of it is really a, a sort of a, a focus on the light the light on her face and it's just her but um, but it was um, it was one of those pieces that stuck with me. Those earthy kind of um, umbers and you know those those tones that the Dutch masters utilized are just they make sense to our eye because that's generally how that information comes into our eyeball. So I think that that also it's always so compelling to me to see that that palette and it's a mm-hmm. narrow palette that a lot of those masters painted with. Yeah. Some artists will will paint with those limited palettes where they're using like a titanium white, an umber, um, a sienna, maybe an alizin, you know, like a crimson. Yeah, we're we're up on the alizarin yeah. line. <laughs> yeah, so like most you know most kind of traditional painters use yeah. a fairly, and there's some there's different ways to set up your palette, but like yeah. the kind of classical way, you have you only have a handful of colors, and that's generally how I paint as well in modern art and in modern you know painting we see a lot of high chroma colors that we don't necessarily encounter just looking around at stuff every day which is why that kind of limited palette generally makes sense or looks more realistic because that's that's generally how we see no there was another one uh grisel grisai which is a a french um technique yeah like a grayscale kind of underpainting yeah Yeah. Yeah. so i'm doing that right now actually green it was green and one of the browns sepia dark dark green sepia yeah. and gray i think were the only colors yeah. or something and there's again just really arresting paintings and the grisaille is like something that it's also a technique that you can a, a lot of like traditional painters will do a grisaille which is effectively like just a value underpainting and it's kind of how i paint as well where basically mm-hmm. you're just doing a grayscale, or it could be in any color really yeah but you're just doing like an underpainting of what you want of the figure say and you're just looking at the value like mm-hmm. the tone you're not worried about different types of colors it's just effectively one color it could be sepia it could be mm-hmm. a gray it could be um kind of like an okra or an umber and then so you do almost your whole painting but just in one value so like one color in the sliding scale of like a little bit brighter a little bit darker so you add just a little bit of white or, or however you want to do it 
you let that dry. And then on top of that, you put on glazes. Mm. So you use your paint, like maybe it's like a kind of a yellowish or, you know, ochre glaze. And then you do a little bit of a reddish glaze or a bluish glaze. So you take your paint, your oil paint, which is already, it's just pigment and it's some sort of binder, right? Right. Yeah. So you just use that with maybe some linseed oil mm -hmm. or another type of medium. Like you could use modern synthetic mediums yeah. like um, liquids really, I like it because it's, it dries really quickly, but it, it's quite toxic. Mm. But like <laughs> yes. you kind of mix that into a glaze. So it's like a yeah. thin representation of that pigment and you oh. paint over the top of your grisaille. Mm. So a lot of old master kind of techniques rested on that. Like mm -hmm. th that's how you get that glowing effect. Yeah. It's kind of the, the underpainting's suggesting where the form is. And then the glazes on top of it create yeah. the kind of color effect. So interesting. Top. I think, Sam, I think we need to do a family trip to the Netherlands to see some of the Dutch master paintings in person. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> um, we're running out of time. Just a big, huge thank you. I, I found this fascinating. I learned a lot. Yes, I did too. Your command of so many artists and their histories. It seems like you've really spent a lot of time studying this. Yeah. Well, the problem with like just nerding out and having this consume all of my free time is I probably pronounce everything wrong because I actually, <laughs> I don't, it's not like I'm sitting through classes. I'm just like reading books and watching YouTube. So that's all hopefully right. you guys can edit this to make me sound smart. <laughs> yeah, you are smart. I, I really, I, I love this conversation. You know, I have always been in just complete awe of your artistic talent and I'm even more, more so now that I know, you know, how much thought and calculation and science really goes into a given painting. And it's really quite remarkable. Oh, it's very nice of you to say. I think, you know, for me, it's, it's enjoyable to, to balance a bit of, you know, left and right brain with it. Mm. And like, I like to just bound my composition and root it a little bit classically, but also you get to make it your own and that's what's yeah. exciting. And that's what gives you that sense of purpose when you're putting paint on the canvas because you get to make it your own. But if you're kind of playing within some rules, if you're trying to create this style of art, like there's a million different ways to do it and a million different ways to make a beautiful painting or drawing. But if you're looking for that kind of um, that effect, um, there's some kind of more or less scientific type of uh, considerations yeah. that make it easier more than anything. Yeah, no, it's great. So remind us again where we can find you if people want to go and look at your art. Yeah. <laughs> My Insta is Sam Boyd, S-A-M-B-O-Y-D dot art. Got a show coming up in July here in Australia and uh, awesome. some art at work with some paintings, but I'll put some more stuff up on the gram soon. Yeah, hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll be there to see your show. Yeah, come on down oh, under, guys. Oh, that would be fun. Right. <laughs> well, that would mean at least two of us there, so three of us. <laughs> there you yeah. go. It's good. I'll, I'll, bring the, I'll bring the booze. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Luxai podcast. A very special thank you to our guest, Sam Boyd. You can find him on Instagram at samboyd.art. Also, a very special thank you to our audio engineer, Dimas. Please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie, and we'll see you next time.